1: fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever and with fishing booker you can experience it too no matter where you are discover your next adventure on fishing booker
2: the pope and young club wants to welcome you as we rally together to ensure our bow hunting opportunities for today and tomorrow You've come to the podcast that believes in preserving, protecting, and promoting the passion for bow hunting. Join us as we strive to be the voice of today's bow hunter. This is the Pope and Young Podcast.
3: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Pope and Young Podcast. Jason Roundsville here, joined as always by my co host, Dylan Ray. And we have with us, we have back with us today, we have renowned bow hunter Dennis Dunn. Dennis, welcome back.
1: Pleasure to be back, Jason.
3: Uh, you didn't get enough of us last time?
1: Well, I, 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 uh, no, I guess I never get enough of Pope and Young in any way.
3: <laughs> well, we appreciate it. I, I mean, we could do weeks and weeks of stories of just nothing but you because you've been doing this. How
1: many years have you been bow hunting? I've been bow hunting. Um, let me think. Uh, Seventy-two years. Seventy-two
3: years. So, I would imagine you've got enough stories to fill a year's worth of uh, of podcasts. So, we're happy to have you back on because because we want to hear about some of them. And then for for those of you who don't know, this was all done with a Now, was it a longbow?
1: No, all all, all types of bows, not crossbow. I don't consider a crossbow an archery weapon, Uh, but uh, I've never used any sights. So all my animals have been taken uh, with purely instinctive shooting. So some of them are taken with a compound, although not in the last uh, 16 years. Uh, Some with a longbow, some with a recurve. I hung up my compound in the fall of 06 for good and never have gone back to it, never will. I just get more pleasure out of shooting an arrow um, with a traditional bow so I can see it in flight. Uh, these modern compounds, you know, especially in poor light in the evening, um, yeah. you can't even see your arrow in flight.
3: No, that's that's a problem that I've had for a lot. I mean, you know, 30 years ago I could because, you know, the, the arc of the thing, you can just follow it. But, yeah, lately with these bows as fast and flat as they are, i can't see them at all
1: That's, It's not surprising I've, somebody invented the luminock uh, at least uh when people take a shot at last legal shooting light at an animal they've got some chance of of uh seeing whether or not it may have hit the animal or not and uh, or finding the arrow afterwards to examine it for sign to see if they did get a hit
3: yeah and they are great for that i i you know sometimes uh, people ask me a lot of questions about different stuff sometimes i don't necessarily have an opinion or i don't necessarily have the experience that i feel you know necessary to give an, an official opinion but i'll tell you what when it comes to luminox absolutely 100 percent, i I'd support them um promote them and i mean if if you're hunting with me unless you're in idaho where you can't have them they are almost required. I use them even for target practice because I just can't see where I'm heading otherwise.
1: You know, Jason, let me share something with you and your, your viewers on that. Uh, I absolutely support Luminox, but I've never used them. And uh, around the time I would have started using them is when I hung up my compound forever and went back to my roots in traditional archery. And now I won't consider taking a shot at an animal that's, uh, that's not at least 30 yards or closer to me. And yeah. uh, at those close distances, uh, luminox are not so critical. I mean, you can have a pretty good idea of being able to see your arrow at 30 yards, but not out there at 60 or 80 if it's if in, your, yeah. in your last uh, half hour or so of legal shooting line. Yeah. And, uh, I, I took the position in the Pope and Young Club meetings years ago. In fact, a lot of people raised their eyebrows sure. over it because um, it, when I took my world record grizzly bear in the spring of '04. Um, I took it with a compound, shot it from eight yards away, and uh, it lived maybe 45 seconds before it gave up the ghost. But right. that was the Pope and Young world record for 10 years. And about, uh, uh, I shot it in the spring of 04, and along about um, 09, I think it was, might have been 011, uh, Ron Tobias from Pennsylvania uh, shot a bigger bear um, that scored more than mine did but he could not enter it in the Pope and Young records because it had been taken with a lighted knock. Huh. So I was in the position, because I believe so strongly, that lighted knocks increased the archer's chance of recovery of his animal. Um, I got up and argued on behalf of the club accepting lighted knocks uh, for animals taken with them for entry, uh, even though I knew that that would immediately dethrone my world record and rod tobias's bear with him become the number one wow
3: yeah most people wouldn't have done that
1: (laughs) had you ever heard that story
3: i had not heard that story that's a good one though it's you know and and we have been often
1: uh, you
3: know critiqued for being in in some cases kind of the equipment police and uh, uh you know especially for me i just don't have great eyesight um so, so I'm glad that we allow them because it's. I just once again can't. I just can't see with without those things.
1: Well, I have supported them ever since they came out, and I didn't feel it was right for Rod Davis to be denied the world record uh, just because he had shot that bear with a with a lighted knock. Uh, his bear was accepted by Boone and Crockett uh, long before Pope and Young accepted it. Yeah, yeah, they they're they're
3: a little more lenient on. On a lot of the rules than than we are, so well, they don't
1: get involved in equipment the way we do. You're right. Yeah, so it's
3: because um, for know, them,
1: as long as the animal is taken legally under the canons of fair chase, um, and you know within a legal season, um, they don't care what the weapon is. It could be a spear.
3: Yeah, it could be a Ford Bronco.
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> I guess so. I mean, that's what you call a picked up trophy.
3: <laughs> yeah, so it's and I and you know what the guys over there, Justin and and everybody over there, man, they're good about it too because they know when they see me, I, I'm gonna ask the question. Hey, if I hit this, you know we're because Pope and Young, we're a hunting organization. And I said, you know, if I hit it with my car, will you take it? And they're like, yeah, we will. You know, we will because you've asked us that thirty times. So <laughs> yeah, you, you know, you got to have a little fun with those guys when you can. And they're good sports. They're really good. So um now that's so that's the bear. What other world records have you been involved with?
1: That's the only Pope and Young world record. Um, Okay. I have had uh I've had three world records, all of which are broken now. I mean records are made to be broken. But I have held briefly uh, um anyway three other world records with sci safari club international okay i was tied for the world record in canada lynx and i took that uh animal in the fall of 06 with with a a recurve um and i held for one year only the sci south pacific world record for free-ranging red stags red deer Um, i shot that um beautiful animal in uh, the spring of 012 and for one year it was the the south pacific uh, archery world record for for red stag the other one was um uh, i had i held for a year or two the the world record for columbia whitetail deer you can only hunt them right. down in southwestern uh, oregon and um i had uh, I shot a nice uh, uh four by four down there that uh, for a for a year or two was the world record.
3: That's yeah, that's my neck of the woods. Mm-hmm. So, sh- they yeah, those are uh those are probably just maybe an hour from from where I grew up. It's kind you of Yeah, the Anqua River hungry. basin
1: down there. Uh, so, you hunt around uh, Roseburg, uh east or yep. west of Roseburg for those animals and they're they're beautiful little animals. Some some the occasion, they occasionally produce some very big bucks, and I saw one uh, during the time I hunted him. I, I never got a shot at him, but, but uh, I saw a couple that would have been um, Boona Crockett quality, although I don't think Boona Crockett accepts Columbia whitetails as a separate species. Yeah, that's um, subspecies.
3: Yeah, that's exciting to be able to have, you know, because uh, when you're talking to folks, a lot of people, you know, even a Columbia blacktail is one of the last on their list and you know those are lists that most people don't even include a columbia whitetail on because they're just so few opportunities so pretty pretty neat that you got the experience to do that
1: well you know when oregon started um offering a lottery draw for them after it had been illegal to hunt them for 30 years roughly um somebody tipped me off to the fact that there were 50 uh archery tags available And I figured it'd be such a demand from bow hunters in Oregon to hunt them that um, it would be tough to get drawn for one. So I had accumulated seven bonus points trying to get drawn for the prime archery mule deer area in eastern Oregon. Uh, And I squandered all seven of those bonus points in applying for my first Columbia whitetail tag. Well, I got drawn and then found out that only 30 applicants ever even put in or something like that. Right.
3: Yeah. that's and then
1: I didn't, I didn't kill one uh, that year. I ended up shooting it on the last day of the hunt that first year. I spent a week down there shooting a little, uh, a forked horn because I at least wanted to claim the species. Turned out that forked horn was a Columbia blacktail. And, ah. uh, you know, unless you, you see their tails, um, and it was shot at in the last light in the evening, uh, the antler structure is not going to tell you whether a forked horn is a Columbia blacktail or a white tail. Yeah. So uh, I went back the next year, got drawn again. And that's when I shot the uh, the four by four.
3: Nice. Good for you. Now, did you know somebody there or did you hook up with an outfit? I did. That?
1: I, did. I knew somebody there uh, that lived in that area and, and uh worked with him. Um, he found a landowner uh, that was willing to allow me to hunt on his property. And so it worked out real well.
3: Very nice.
1: Very good. That's uh, it's,
3: it's always neat when it works out that way. It doesn't always work, but it's neat right. when it does. And so, what uh, on your list? What's the what's the next thing up on your list that you're looking forward to?
1: Well, as you may recall from our interview in December, our podcast there, my bugaboo has been trying to upgrade my Alaskan barren ground caribou. Right. Um, there are five bow hunters that have put all 29 Pope and Young species in the Pope and Young records. I know all of them, and they all use compounds and yardie sight pins uh, for aiming. And four of the five use trigger releases. Only Edwin De Young uh, of those five who put all 29 in the Pope and Young records uh, uses three fingers on the string. The others just uh, trigger releases, which is what most bow hunters use, of course, and in, in this day and age. But um, uh, nobody has ever put all 29 species in the Pope and Young records with purely instinctive shooting. Mm-hmm. So for some years, that's been my goal. Uh, and I was counting up earlier today, the number of Alaskan barren ground caribou hunts I've been on. And it was at least, it's at least 11. I wow. just got back from spending another month up there hunting both August and September in two different parts of Alaska, trying to, trying to get that trophy quality bull because, uh, they're very hard to come by. The Alaskan herds of caribou have dropped off dramatically in recent years. Uh, they're, they're stable in a few parts of the state and a couple of herds are growing slowly. But boy, I'll tell you, it's really, really tough to, to um, get them because they're called barren ground for a reason. Most of them live north of the tree line where there's no cover at all. So if you're a stick bow hunter like me, you know how do you get to within 20, 25 yards or, or even 30 of a, an old bull that got old by not being dumb, by being extremely good at evading predators with no cover. And most of that land is flat as a pool table. Uh, the north slope of the Brooks Range, for example, is is where a lot of those hunts take place. And it's just, it's a very, very difficult challenge for an archer, especially a a, um, a traditional archer.
3: Yeah, we just talked to Frank Noski not too long ago, and he said that when he's hunting caribou is one of the species that when he's hunting those he'll actually stretch out how far he practices his shooting just for that same reason because there's just there's not a lot of cover you're just you know there's only so much distance you can close and and uh that was with the compounds especially if you're shooting shooting trad equipment you know the the range goes down and and uh Definitely a challenge. Well, you yeah. like a challenge. You wouldn't do what you do if you didn't like the challenge.
1: Well, that's what it's been all about for me all my life. I love to set a bar for myself that I think is not going to be easy to reach. But when you finally clear the bar, um, you have a sense of accomplishment that uh, is pretty sweet. And then you you build on your successes. You know, you know, one stepping stone to the next. And every time you achieve a new goal that you set for yourself, why? Uh, you begin to, uh, you have further builds your confidence and pretty soon eventually, you, as I have done in my life, come to the realization that there's probably nothing I can't accomplish if I simply uh, work hard enough and I'm willing to make the sacrifices and never give up on the goal. This one I'm talking about now, I'd love to be able to claim the first all Pope and Young, barebow, super slam. Nobody's ever done it. Um and uh, when I took that bison in 2020, where I spent a total of 71 days in a double bull blind on the Kaibab Plateau of northern Arizona, that was, wow. the, that was the next to the last species that I needed to upgrade. And I ended up, the good Lord, uh, dropped that bull in my lap three days before my tag was to expire. But I had spent an average of 12 hours a day in an upright chair for 71 days um, trying to nope. fill that tag.
3: No, thank you.
1: And, I, and, uh, I, once I got that bull out of the way, that's my bison upgrade. Then I had left this uh, Alaskan bearing ground caribou. So yeah. I'm making plans. I've already booked to hunt. Um, I'm gonna be hunting the porcupine herd in Northeastern Alaska next September with a good friend. And uh, we've got a transporter all lined up to fly us into a lake um, in an area that's been pretty productive in the last few years. So uh, the nice thing about that area on the south slope of the Brooks Range is that there are some trees around. There is vegetation, and the topography is more broken up. So there will be opportunities for stalks and ambushes uh, there that uh, were not possible where I was hunting this year.
3: Yeah, that's good. Well, that's, uh, you know, when you talk about dedication, Dylan, That's it. it. here's what you're looking at. Okay. He's done this 11
1: times and he, and he's already
3: booked his trip next year. That's dedication. When you talk about insane, Dennis, was it 71 days in a ground blind?
1: I had two breaks during that time because I knew that at my age, I'd never get drawn uh, for a governor's uh, bison tag. I I went to auction. See, I'm, I'm 82 now and I was 80 then. So I, I knew that, if I was gonna upgrade that bison, I would have to buy a governor's tag, And I did, it came with a 365 day season, which was nice. And I hunted the first five days of the season starting August 15th of 99. Then I had to hurry back home to Idaho to repack to go to Alaska for one of those caribou hunts. And then, I, but I always knew I'd come back to uh, Arizona in, uh, in 2020. And that's when I gave it my everything. I started hunting the 23rd of May hunted for 36 days, took an 11 day break, went back and hunted for another, um, 30, uh, 30 days, I guess it was. And, and, um, as I said, the good Lord delivered my bull to me, a real, uh, a real old pumpkin head three days before that tag was about to expire, but it was a labor of love. And it was, um, a real, it was one of those things where you have to be so incredibly self-disciplined or you, or you give up and throw in the towel. Um, I only saw bison on seven days out of 71. Oh my
3: gosh. See, and yeah, see that's, and uh, we were just talking a bit ago, I I had an antelope hunt. It was 16 hours a day in a ground blind. After three days, I was done. I'm like, I had planned on hunting. It was a nine day season and I was going to give it the full nine. And I'll tell you what, Dennis, after day three of being in there that much, I'm just like, you know what? uh there's elk to hunt i've got a couple of deer tags i'm
1: like mm-hmm,
3: yeah i'm i'm just the, I, i'm gonna head out but uh wow seven 70 some days well I,
1: I i have to explain something i was working with an, an arizona outfitter named russ jacoby whom i cannot say enough good things about he and his whole family have worked with the hunters they get drawn for arizona bison tags for the last 20 years he provided me with a base camp and transportation to within um, a three quarters of a mile of the, of the blind I was hunting from every day, he wouldn't get me any closer because he's, those those bison get hunted 350 days a year. So most of their visits out of the park to the salt blocks that Russ maintains are nocturnal. They only make a mistake occasionally, usually in uh, during periods of the dark of the moon, because they don't like to travel through the forest outside the park in pitch black. But or when it's very very hot. And uh, Russ Jacoby told me that um, the average number of days the hunters he's worked with over the last 20 years have to spend in a blind before they see their first bison, is 14 days. And he said, most people can't hack it. So when I arrived in camp to hunt with him, I said, you know, I'm here for the long term. Uh, given the cho- my choice of weapon, um, I am going to, you know, I'm willing to do whatever it takes. If I'm here a month or two months, or till the season ends, I'm gonna do what it takes to fill that tag. But I said, I know I could not maintain myself dark to dark 15 hours a day for all those days. So I said, I think I could probably hack 12 hours a day. So tell me, do you think I should give up the first three hours of daylight or the last three? His advice when we started the hunt was to give up the last, uh, the first three. But after 36 days, well, I think after 33 days, he said, we gotta switch this around. It may change our luck. So. I started then giving up the last three hours of daylight, and uh, that's when my fortunes began to change, because in the last half of that hunt, I had three different bulls near the end of their life, what they call pumpkin heads, that are really, you know, 9, 10, 11-year-olds um, come to visit me. I was only able to get a shot off at one. Well, that's not quite true. People can read this story, and it's been published in eight or nine different magazines. Uh, um the Pope Young Magazine uh, carried a story on it too, so people can go back and read that. But um, there were three bulls that I had a chance at. Um, didn't get a shot at the first one. The second one, I forgot that I needed to cant my recurve a little bit to the left in order to avoid any potential problem with the roof of the tent. And when I finally released that arrow at a huge bull, it came in in the middle of the day when you would least expect it in a herd of about 30 animals I had a momentary glimpse of his rib cage between two other animals and I released that arrow in a hurry, but the t- top limb of my bow struck the roof of the tent and the arrow sailed out the window of my blind and struck him in high in the back with the force of a whiffle ball because the tent had absorbed most of the energy of the, of the bow. Mm. And, uh, of course, I mean, the arrow went in and maybe an inch, and he went running off and, uh, was totally, uh, unscathed by the incident. But, uh, it wasn't until three days before the tag was about to become worthless that I got my third chance at a, a big old bull. And that's uh, when I give, give my maker all, all the credit because I know it could not have happened without him. And when, without his help, and when he finally came in about a quarter to five in the evening, as I was getting ready to pack up and go out from that blind, he approached the salt block directly facing me and he chowed down on it for 15 minutes. Never changing his footing, so I had my recurve lower limb sitting on the dirt floor of my my tent, my blind, my fingers on the string, the broadhead sticking out the window, ready to shoot at a moment's notice. But I knew that as soon as he lifted a front hoof, I would have to draw and release that arrow immediately, or he'd be going straight away from me. And sure enough, that's exactly the way it came down. And that arrow struck him uh, in just the right spot. It busted through a rib. It transfixed both lungs. Severed the pulmonary artery in between the two lungs, and and he hit the ground in in ten seconds. He traveled eighteen yards is all he went. He was dead in thirty seconds. Wow. Yeah, that's. um, Yeah, and they're big. Tell me that I didn't have some huge providential intervention on my behalf there.
3: Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Especially when you're cutting it that close. That's Uh uh, last three days. That that all of a sudden you start tightening up a little bit.
1: I didn't cut it that close the good lord did. Yeah. So,
3: no, that's um that's a great story. I just I just man, that's a long long time. And then the hardest part for me would have probably been when you took that 11-day break between your periods mm-hmm. because I I don't know what it is and and I don't know if you had cameras out or not, but the one of the places that I get to hunt out, I'll go in there and I'll hunt you know, when I can hunt, which is not 70 some days. And, and then when I'm not there, I'm getting pictures. Sometimes I'll get pictures and it hurts my feelings when I'm not in my blind or tree stand and I've got these bulls and, and it just, I walked in there one time and I've got a, a ground blind, and a tree stand, not too far apart from each other. And literally right smack between them, a bull had just torn up this little pine tree. Mm. And so, so much to the point that I took a picture. I'm like, man, is this something you're excited over that you know you're in the elk? Or is this just tick you off knowing that he was right here and I wasn't? Yeah. So I think that would have been the worst for me is when you took that break knowing that man, today could be the day that they came in and you're not there.
1: Well, so I also knew that if I was gone eleven days, there might be only one day there at most when it, I would have seen any bison anyway. Yeah.
3: Now, were you not the same blind the entire time? No, um,
1: Russ uh, switched me around. Uh, um, I think I hunted out of a total of five different blinds during those okay. 71 days.
3: Yeah. And that's that's another thing. I have a hard time if uh, several years ago, um, this, this place I hunt, I, I, had, I was the only one there. So I could pick from a number of very, very good blinds. And I think like three or four different times I just picked wrong. I'd go to, to honeymoon and they'd come, you know, we'd get them on the camera going by Dutch rock. And then I'd hunt the Pope and Young line and they'd go to honeymoon. And then I'd go to honeymoon and they'd go to homestead. And literally it was this cat and mouse where they just out yeah. maneuvered me every day. And enough so then I,
1: it's enough to drive a man to drink, isn't it?
3: It is. And so then I'm just like, okay, well, I know eventually they're going to come by Dutch rock. And so, you know, then I'll go sit in that for eight days in a row or whatever, you know, I happen to have at the time. And, and then you just wonder, you're like, am I doing this right? Cause if they're somewhere else, they're not going to come by here, but uh, I just get stubborn to the point that I don't want them to come by when I'm not there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Last year, Jay, I was hunting um, down in Oklahoma. At, uh, Liberty Ranch, our, one of our outfitters and, yeah. um, I'd hunted for like five days and, and I sat in the same blind for the first four, for the first four and a half sits and, right. uh, first four and a, four days and morning sit and, uh, you know, didn't see a lot of action. And so I finally just said, dude, put me somewhere else. Like, and he's like, D- I'm telling you, this is where I think he's going to show up. And I'm like, no, nah, dude, put me somewhere else. And so I moved to a new spot. I did see ton. I, one of the funnest sits I've ever had. Saw tons of deer, um, a lot of red activities, really cool set. Uh, but while I was sitting there, he sent me a picture of the giant that we were chasing at your right state. 20 yards in front of the blind that I was hunting. And I'm like,
1: gosh dang yeah. it.
2: And uh, I texted him back and I just said, this is why you trust your
1: outfitter. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. In fact, that's a great bit of advice that, that I like to give uh, to your viewing audience because. I have been hunted with so many outfitters in so many states and territories during my life uh, or, or provinces of Canada. Um, generally speaking, your outfitter and your guide know so much more about their territory and about the habits of their game that you're hunting in their territory that you're foolish not to take their advice. They're not always right, but they have a better chance of being right than you do. So be very slow to second guess your guide because. Uh, when they're telling you that you think you should do something, they probably have one or more good reasons for it.
2: You know, I'm a huge proponent of just learning, like altogether learning from guides. I'll drive I'll, I'll drive them insane because like if I roll into like an elk camp, like I'm asking that outfitter as soon as I get out of the truck, like ask them different questions. Sure. How how have the elk been acting this time of year? You know, where are they at height-wise? Are they, you know, what what elevation are they hanging out this time of year? Where, And, and I drive them insane, but, I view that as my biggest learning opportunity of the year. I mean, you can learn so much from those guys. So all week long, I'm just trying to pick their brains and and yeah. and hear from them and 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 gather as much information as I can. And you know, I and then I utilize that. And then you know, next year I'm like, well, I remember that outfitter saying blah blah blah, and, and use that information. And so I'm a huge proponent of of learning everything you can from guides for sure. And, and of so- course,
1: experience is the best teacher. You learn so much from. From every hunt you go on, you learn most of all from your mistakes. And, um, but Jason, getting back to a question you asked me earlier, um, you asked me what, what hunts do I have planned? What's on the top of my bucket list right now? Uh, could we go back to that one? Absolutely. Um, obviously the caribou I mentioned in Alaska is at the top of my bucket list 10 times over, but, uh,
3: so we'll go have to the three, top. I have two we'll other ones. I'm sorry. So we'll, we'll <laughs> Caribou is the top ten spot. So what's what's in your top twenty? Well, you, you know what else?
1: Let me let me tell you, I, you. Everybody has to recognize, of course, that I'm in a race with Father Time, At my age. At my age, you never know which son's going to be your last one, right? Well, I mean, none uh, of us know that, Dennis. That that's any and all. Oh, right? that's true. But uh, uh, I'm a whole lot closer to to uh, having had my last son probably than you are, either one of you guys. Um, but you just yeah, never know what's going to happen. It can be a health uh, issue that suddenly knocks you out of the arena for good, or it could be something like almost happened to me is this, this last month where I got charged by a bull muskox from four yards away and lived to tell about it. Um, but I have two hunts, uh, a plan for next year besides the caribou hunt.
3: Hey, Dennis, that's, that's cause you, you think you're closer cause you haven't seen the way I drive. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So anyway tell, i'm sorry please go ahead as long
2: as
1: you don't drink hand drive never uh,
2: only, do, only 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 skis. yeah
1: all right well there's a, a good friend of mine in moses lake named joe russo uh, who is a traditional archer and he and i have shared uh uh bison on together in northern bc a few years back where he took a really nice six-year-old bull but uh that just barely missed popin young and I never drew an arrow on that hunt because I only saw young bulls. But uh, at any rate, Joe and I are going to hunt black bear with an outfitter in central British Columbia this coming uh, early May. He hunted there last year and the spot and stock only, you can't bait them up there, but he was making stocks on black bears every single day, uh, multiple stalks on some days. So we're going to spend a week hunting black bear together. Um, I haven't hunted black bear in quite a while. I've taken one spot and stock and I've, uh, I've shot two over bait uh, from a tree stand. Um, I baited up my own black bear. The first time I ever killed a black bear, it was about eight miles from downtown Seattle where the crow flies out on the Pine Lake Plateau between Lake Sammamish and Lake Washington. And and uh, that was an experience. It's Of course, it, it's in my book. That story is called The Marshmallow Bear um, for those who want to check it out. But uh, um I love hunting bears. There's something about bears. It's so enigmatic, so mysterious. They have a sixth or seventh sense that goes beyond just their senses of, of smell and senses of hearing. Their sight's not all that good, but you, you bull hunters out there listening to this podcast, just be aware that even though they're supposed to not have very good sight, mm-hmm. That only applies to their ability to identify as silhouette. They have outstanding sight when it comes to movement. But you can get away with a lot if you're close, if they can't smell you and can't hear you, if you don't move. But somehow, uh, when you spot and stalk Black Bear, they will often become aware of your presence. And rather than just bolt, they'll just somehow sidle away and feed away from you and leave you wondering why you never got a chance to draw on them. But they knew what they were doing and they don't even let you know they're onto you sometimes. I got I got carried away on a tangent there, but the other hunt I have planned for next year, you've uh, already done a podcast interview with Dr. Warren Strickland. Oh, yes. He's one of my favorite people, and he's one of the greatest bow hunters in North America today, without a doubt. He and I have, uh, we hunted uh, cow's whitetail in Mexico once, many years ago. Haven't hunted together since, but we have planned. A, a, a mule deer hunt for um, desert mule deer in Mexico uh, next uh, next um, November.
3: Nice. that's outstanding. Now is that next year or that coming up next month?
1: no I'm I at 23 yeah next okay November. gotcha all right
3: yeah so some of us are still trying to round out our 22s
1: so <laughs> I, I understand.
3: That's the difference yeah.
2: between the goods and the greats, Jay. We're we're still looking at the last two weeks of 2023. They're still they're already booking their hunts for 2024, 20, 2025. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
3: I'm still trying to I I'm, I'm still hoping I get to sneak in somewhere here in the next couple months. And yeah. and and Dennis is like planning out. He knows where he's going. He's probably got his his hotel rooms and his and his flights taken care of.
1: No, so. not true. Is and I haven't booked any hunts for 25. I'm uh, or 24 either. Uh, I'm taking it one year at a time and putting that caribou first but I figured that I could afford to make those other two hunts next year if I'm alive enough to hunt caribou next September uh, I will have been able to hunt black bear in May and maybe I'll still be alive enough to hunt uh, um, mule deer in November well I'll tell you what I'm ready
3: to see uh, and you have my number so when you get that caribou you send me that text because that's a picture I'm looking forward to seeing because that is the final, that is the 29th one that you need.
1: To have all of them in the Pope and Young records. That's right, Bearbowl. That's that's pretty cool. So, yeah, I'll, I'll be waiting for that. That's Of course, that's, that's the that's, title of my book, too, you know. And that book of mine, which came out in 08, that went on to win six National Literary Awards. It's simply called Bearbowl.
3: Yeah, Ar- and it's, An it's a wonderful fair book. Shays,
1: and the subtitle is An Archer's fair chase Taking of North America's Big Game 29.
3: Yeah, it's a phenomenal book. If 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 folks haven't seen it, you definitely definitely need to check that out. And I know, Dennis, you promote it, but I it's it's going to the illustrators, I believe,
1: right? That's right. I promote it in order to help Dallin Lamson feed his six children uh, primarily, because five years ago, six years ago, I gave all the remaining copies of the the unsold copies of the book to the two artists. Uh, Hayden Lanson did the 30 color oil paintings, 29 of which introduced the 29 chap- species chapters of a portrait of that species in its natural habitat. But Dallin, uh, the son, contributed 38 black and white fine line graphite pencil drawings. And he has no other job. Uh, he paints six days a week. It's a Mormon family. And he uh, is trying to raise six kids on his earnings as an artist. If you can believe that. Yeah. I'd. You
3: know, I don't think I'm going to make much of a living painting unless it's well, like houses. wants to go or,
1: finger copy paints, a, order a copy Jason's of go book. with
3: finger paints.
1: They should go to bearbows.com, the book's website. You put an S on the title, bearbow with an S, bearbows.com. They can order the book right there and they'll end up uh, get, uh, sending their credit card number or check to Dallin Lamson. Nice. Um. Now,
3: in, any other books in the works?
1: Uh, not at the moment, but you know what I'm thinking of doing a lot of people over the last few years, more and more, it seems like all the time are urging me to republish that book as an audio book oh. while I'm still alive and still have a good speaking voice. And I I think once I get this caribou under my belt, um, that will become my priority project, I think.
3: Nice. That That would be fun.
1: I did yes. republish it back in 012. I republished it as a series of ebooks that you can download from Amazon. I broke it up into seven different volumes. Volume one is the, the bear bow deer book. Volume two is the bear bow elk book. Then the bear book, sheep book, caribou book, moose book. And then the seventh volume is the volume, the catch all book for the five species that don't fit into a family, namely the stories um, of mine in the chapters on muskox, bison, mountain goat uh cougar or mountain lion and um bronghorn antelope but all of those are downloadable through amazon and the elk book has three stories in it not in the print book that's the only one of those ebooks i think they're downloadable from amazon to your kindle for four dollars and four dollars and 99 cents each but there's one extra story for each of the three elk species in that ebook that's not in the print book
3: okay now, if you have to pick, uh, so we're just going to go just the ones that are in that book. What's your favorite favorite animal or or your favorite trophy that is in the book?
1: Well, I've been asked that question a lot a lot of times in different forms. Uh, probably the one that means the most to me is my stone sheep. Because I married a Canadian, I lived in British Columbia for almost 11 years, and I was able to hunt stone sheep for the price of a $50 resident sheep tag. There you go. And uh, I'm sure there's no way to prove it, but I suspect I may well be the uh, only American who can claim to have taken a stone ram with a bow and arrow without a guide or a hunting buddy. I did it on a solo do-it-yourself backpack hunt. Hmm. Wow. And so that means an awful lot to me that that was that was an unbelievable dream come true. And I, when I came off the mountain at the end of a week, never having seen another human being the whole week I was on that mountain, I, I think my pack weighed about 140 pounds. Wow. The story gets more interesting, though, for the reader who, who gets a copy of my book, because when I presented that ram for the, the compulsory inspection by the B.C. wildlife authorities, they confiscated it from me, told me it wasn't legal. Well, they took me to court, charged me with shooting an illegal ram. I was eventually cleared of the charge, but you could make a movie out of of that whole deal. I ended up in the BC Supreme Court twice. The judge who first uh, took the who first um, had had the when the Crown Counsel prosecuted me uh, at what the Superior Court level up in Northern BC, that judge was later removed from the bench for for alcoholism, uh, which I guess didn't surprise me because. uh, the first day of that sheep trial, uh, she, we recessed for lunch. When she came back an hour later, she forgot, totally forgot she had started a sheep trial that morning and called upon the same Crown, crown Counsel prosecuting me to present his next case, which involved a, a drunken Indian beating up his girlfriend over the weekend. And then three or four more like that came along, and by 4.30 in the afternoon, with two expert witnesses, one a sheep biologist sitting there in the courtroom ready to testify on my behalf, um, the Crown Counsel reminded her, Honor, that she had started a sheep trial that morning. This is just the beginning of what turned out to be an unbelievable legal saga that lasted over, um, let's see, it lasted over...
2: Uh, i say we make a movie.
1: 11 years. I know. Yeah, Well, I finally got the sheep back, but you won't believe what I went through to get it back. Wow.
3: And so were they saying it was not uh, the right age class or what was the?
1: the well, it, it don't go into the weeds with me there because it's very complex. To be okay. legal, a stone ram has to either be seven years of age uh, or it has to have one horn tip when viewed from the side, quote unquote, in the regulation pamphlet. One horn tip when viewed from the side must rise above the forehead nose bridge line. But um don't take me any further than that because it becomes very complex. Um, anybody who wants can read the the, the the story of that trial and the subsequent hearings and trials that I went through, um, and it makes a fascinating read once you get into it.
0: Hmm.
3: Yeah,
1: that's that, a salesman
2: right there. Tells yeah, you no, enough to tells you enough to get you going. Then he says, "It's in my book. Go check it yeah, out." just a tidbit. Yeah, nobody. Yeah,
1: needs and, that if, if, you, if you want another example of why my my grand slam of the four sheep is probably the has probably caused me more grief in acquiring those four head and shoulder mounts for my living room wall than maybe any other sheep hunter in the country. You should read the story on the desert bighorn because a chucker hunter found my dead ram while we were still searching for it, cut off the head, neck and horns, stole them. I ended up having to put an ad in, the, in three Nevada newspapers in order to get my ram back but i finally got it back and i finally got it accepted um not only plugged by arizona by, by nevada fishing game but accepted by the pope and young records committee yeah. what i went through to get my stone ram back and my desert ram back you cannot believe
3: ah that's so so you especially on the stone the uh, uh the plus of a $50 tag was eventually taken up with lawyer fees.
1: <laughs> yeah. for Well, actually I didn't even hire a lawyer until I'd been into this for about two and a half years. Huh. I told you, I ended up in the BC Supreme court twice um, first time by myself, the second time with a lawyer. But anyway, um, I finally got it back 11 years later and uh, the final chat story in that book Excuse me. The final story in that chapter, the Sown Sheep chapter, explains how I got it back, which was quite amazing.
3: Yeah. Well, I guess when you've been hunting as long as you have and as many places as you've been, you, you're bound to have some some stories like that. H- however, hassling they were along the way, at least you've got them now. So that's right. Have, have you had any that didn't go your way, like st- you know something that was stolen that you didn't find? No,
1: no, I can't say that. Unfortunately,
3: yeah, yeah I've had I had a couple of uh, mule deer stolen by a taxidermist. So well, I mean, are
1: you telling me I, that was? Yeah,
3: uh, it's not. I mean, it's not a desert sheep, but at the time for me, it might as well have been. It was. It I believe was, it. You know, and to this day, it's just. It's funny because somebody says, "Well, just go shoot a bigger one." It's like, "Okay, I'll go shoot a bigger one," but it still doesn't replace that one. I still don't. No, yeah. and, and as
1: I recall from your story, that was a pretty big mule deer yeah it was
3: it was for me so um which which you know is when dylan and i are talking about big deer anything over a fork and horn is considered basically a big deer and sometimes a fork yeah. And horn
1: yeah that's true you were asking me what animal meant the most to me of the ones i've taken yeah well right after that stone sheep i guess it would have to be my my world record grizzly bear i mean how do you how do you top that uh I shot him from eight yards away Uh, on the book's website. uh, You can click on videos and watch the footage taken by my camp cook um, with my camcorder. And uh, um, that was obviously an incredible thrill. Um, Then the bison hunt we talked about earlier in this podcast, uh, that had to be one of the great highlights. Those are probably the three most special animals for me. The fourth one would be a 380 um rocky mountain elk a 380 class elk that i shot in arizona on public land in 2015 with my recurve and a wooden arrow yeah what's the easiest hunt that you've ever had what's something where
3: you're just like man i was walking to the blind and i was there for three minutes and here here he is
1: anything like that oh well, like when i was 10 years old a squirrel <laughs> you know i've shot i've shot blue grouse out of a tree uh, um, I shot a chucker off the ground and thought he was well hidden under a sage sage bush uh, br- uh, sagebrush bush uh, in in Utah once. Uh, the, those just kind of dropped in my lap without any effort.
3: Yeah, that's. Dylan and I talk about that because it's everybody who shoots big stuff says in order to shoot the big stuff, you have to pass the little stuff, which is hard. I don't believe us.
1: that. I don't agree that, with that.
3: Yeah, then we had Chuck Adams on, who the first year he saw on his hunt for blacktails that year was the world record—a world stinking record. Yeah, so I'm like, dude, I could shoot that if it was a world record. I just, you know, the problem is, I'm by the time I see the world record, I'm done because I tagged down on a three-point. Mm-hmm. Well, that's
1: that's really important point to make, and I tell people the only way you ever shoot a record book animal, a, tro- a true trophy quality animal, is to pass up everything less. Yeah.
3: And it's, and even then, sometimes it doesn't do it because the last, right. that's right. Last two antelope hunts I've been on, I've quite literally killed the biggest antelope I either saw in the unit or caught on camera for the area I was hunting. And uh, neither of those are, are probably going to
1: make it. So, well, to make the point again, in my case with regard to caribou, there have been a couple of caribou, um, Alaskan bearing ground caribou, I could have killed in the last decade. But they wouldn't have made Poven Young's minimum of three twenty five. I can think of two that I had dead to rights that probably scored right around three hundred. Yeah. That that makes it for some other species of caribou, but not for Alaskan bearing ground.
3: Yeah. Um yeah, which is still that's a great caribou. It's just not quite booked.
1: That's right. So,
3: um Yeah. That's I you know, Dylan, I think I'd be happy with a three hundred inch caribou. How about you? Well, you know me, Jay.
2: <laughs>
3: the answer is yes.
2: Yeah. My my dad called me and and he gives me a hard time and he says, "That son, when are you going to shoot a big deer?" And I said, "Well, when a big deer steps out before a little deer does, I guess." <laughs> I
1: just like <laughs> That's good.
2: <laughs> no, I I say this quite often. I'm really good and really picky until about the end of November. Um, you know, I've passed up a lot of really good bucks, um, at pretty much every year, but when it gets into November and, uh, you know, I've been hunting, you know, for 60 plus days, pretty much if it's got horns, I'm going to shoot it. And, uh, last year I Facetime my dad as I was walking up, I said, dad, I just shot a buck. I wanted to show you. And, uh, his first words were, dude, you sent me videos of deer bigger than that all year. And I'm like, I know, but it wasn't, you know, I was still holding out for a bigger one then.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah
3: didn't catch
2: me on a bad day
3: yeah yeah it, it's my whole thing is, is i just if i think oh i just want to see if i could get this and then draw i don't know what it is but as soon as i draw on something i feel compelled to to let an arrow go <laughs> 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 i've got i've got an antelope open a mule deer both pretty small that, that would uh, verify that for you there's
2: just no shame in my game, man. I mean, if a deer comes in and it gets me fired up, I'm going to shoot it. Like, yeah. And I'm not going to apologize to anybody for it.
3: Yeah. It just looks at you sideways.
2: You know, there are a
1: few trophy animals that I could have taken in my life that I passed up because I had a more burning desire in my, within me to shoot that animal with a camera instead. uh, I'll never forget the Wolverine. I spent Mm. less, I spent three full minutes Less than thirty yards from a male wolverine that was chowing down on a caribou kill, and I filmed him for over three minutes because I was so thrilled at the chance to get a wolverine on film at close range. Most people who want the North Country never even see one in their lifetime, and if they do, it's usually running away at four hundred yards, or, you know. But I had a chance to get this footage of this wolverine. My guide and I had seen him three days in a row and had begun to pattern pattern him. And I finally figured out a plan that I thought would allow me to get close and maybe kill him. But when I got there in position and uh, he came in to feed on the carcass just where where I thought he would in the way I thought he would, he had no idea I was there. And uh, I picked up the camera first. I had the bow lying on the ground next to me with an arrow on the string, ready to shoot. And I had a Wolverine tag in my pocket, burning a hole. But I was so thrilled at the chance to film him that I filmed for five or 10 seconds too long. And when I picked up that camera um, or rather put it down and picked up the bow, just, it was a compound bow then. Unfortunately, had it been a stick bow, I would have killed that Wolverine. But, um, you know, with a compound, you the wheels turn over and you would lurch into your anchor. Well, as I was drawing, he hopped off the carcass, not because of me or saw any motion, had that been the case he would have dived into an alder creek bottom that was just 10 yards below him down the hillside instead he hopped off the carcass and started loping across the open tundra to another alder creek bottom about 80 yards away he just felt he had been exposed long enough uh, and had had enough to eat on that uh, at that sitting that meal uh, so that he better um, get cover again and and um, if i'd only stopped filming five or ten seconds sooner i would have had a stationary shot at that at that uh wolverine and what a trophy that would have been
3: yeah you don't know, hear about a lot of those getting taken especially i only know
1: one archer that's taken a wolverine with a bow and he killed two of them two days back to back both uh, both of them were a mating pair feeding on a caribou carcass of a bull that, that he had killed a few days earlier up in the northwest territories and i'm speaking of my good friend randy lillenquist hmm. yeah
3: that's uh they're pretty rare. The only one that I've been around, and I wasn't even around it, is I was waiting at uh, at camp for some buddies, and they show up because they pulled my trailer up to Canada, and one of the fenders was all bent in. And I'm like, guys, what the heck happened? And they're like, dude, we hit a wolverine. I'm like, come on. What happened? And they're like, no, we really hit a wolverine. Oh, so no, really? <laughs> To this day i mean it's it's been like 10 or 12 years and to this day both of them swear they hit a wolverine with my trailer so that's did you know that a I've grizzly
1: been. bear a grizzly bear will never contest a uh, a dead animal a carcass uh, any food source with a wolverine because a wolverine can kill a grizzly yeah i
3: know they i i don't know about killing them but i know they're definitely don't like
1: each other well i had an indian guide on a a uh, grizzly hunt up in the Yukon explained to me years ago why it is that a, a, a grizzly won't tangle with a wolverine because the wolverine, they're so quick, they can attach themselves like lightning to the underside of the chest of the grizzly uh, and they hang on with all four all four sets of claws while they bury their, their teeth in the, under the neck and the, the juggler of the grizzly. And whereas the bear may have enormous strength with his arms out to the sides, where he can knock your head off and send it 30 yards through the air, like a soccer ball, you get his pot. He, he doesn't have that strength in close next to his chest and he can't get that Wolverine off him before he's bled to death.
3: Huh? Huh? That's yeah. You wouldn't want to be a Wolverine that had to figure that out. You wouldn't want to be yeah, yeah. the one that had to try it. Right. So, well, I'll tell you what, Dennis, we, we appreciate you coming in and spending some more time with us. Obviously you've got stories that, that we just love to hear about. And, you know, we're part of a, a large, um, uh, you know, a large crowd that's rooting you for that, for that caribou. We want to see oh, all 29. You. So, um, we're, we're going to continue to be cheerleaders for you. Yeah. And you know what, as soon as that one hits the ground, you just you text us a picture and we'll set up and and we're gonna want to hear about that.
1: Sure enough, we're good so, enough, Jason. Well, thanks for your cheerleading. Believe me, I appreciate it.
3: Absolutely. Well, I cannot wait to see you in uh, Reno. That that's coming up. We're working hard on conventions. So, um,
1: we, have the dates been set?
3: Yes, it's a uh, April. What is it? Twelve through fifteen. Yep. In Reno at the Nugget and registration. Uh, our goal is to have registration open in the month of October. And I believe that we're only a few days away from registration being open. So uh, keep an eye on your email. We're going to let everybody know as soon as that hits.
1: Okay, good enough. I, I'll, I'll plan to be there, God willing. And uh, tell the, um, tell the, the powers to be there on the staff and that uh, if they want me to give another seminar, an illustrated seminar, I'll be happy to do it.
3: That sounds good. And you know what, if you do it, we'll even have some, uh, some AV stuff that works this time.
1: <laughs> That'd be great. I'd appreciate I it. I think you owe me that. <laughs> I do.
3: I definitely do. And it, and it has been noted and it, uh, we are it's, taking steps to address it. It's, they said,
2: they said, Dylan, we're getting a new AV guy for next year. I said, great, because I never claimed to have known this stuff ever. Yeah. <laughs>
3: yeah, It's well, you know, you try to do it and especially how it was last time in the middle of COVID, you know, Virginia went sideways and then, we went to Reno and, and it turned out great, but going into Reno, we, we were pretty scared. And, uh, you know, once again, on the backside, everything went well, but you just don't know, you know, two weeks out and you know, we we're trying to run with, with the skeleton crew. Yeah. You were know,
1: staffed. I remember.
3: Yeah. Plus Tim was brand new and like a know, week. He was like a week in. Yeah. He was a week in, and somebody else went home sick. So it yeah. was, we're pretty tight, but uh, this time uh, you have my assurance that uh, either that that AV works, or I will personally roll ahead down the down the
1: hallway. All right. Well, if you haven't already picked your bands with speakers for Friday and Saturday, uh, throw my throw my name in the hat.
3: Okay, will do. Yeah, Heather Heather handles that, so we'll touch base with her and uh, and let you know, Dennis. We really appreciate all your support
1: along the well, way. Well, thank you so much for this uh, wonderful second uh, podcast.
3: Okay, yep. Uh, really enjoyed talking with you as always. Hey, good luck to you
1: this hunting season. It's Thank not you over yet, much. You know, yeah, for I, me, Dylan, you got to get that big November whitetail buck.
2: I sure got to try. Yeah.
1: All right. You good know, luck, like, you guys.
3: My West Coast seasons are just about over, but uh, you know, as long as we don't tell anybody, I'm going to try to sneak up to Alberta and shoot a few birds while nobody's looking. So
1: good, good luck on that one.
3: <laughs> Thanks so much. Have a great one.
1: Bye bye. Thank you. Bye bye.